Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Bike Karma. Thank you very much for coming to listen to these stories connecting all types of people and all types of bicycles. The goal is to expand the palette of open-minded cyclists who want to explore bicycle stories outside of their own wheelhouse. So whether you like riding around the block or riding around the world, you like fixing bikes or you like taking them through the woods, we'll have a story for you. This episode, it's falling in and out of love with mountain biking, the Fitchburg Rides Festival, where we look at Ivor Johnson bicycles, and animals in the bicycle workshop, dogs and cats. This will be the only episode in July and August because I gotta fix up some bikes before snow flies or I'm never gonna sell them. Also, if you like the podcast at all, please like and follow us on iTunes, Instagram, Podbean, and Tumblr. Really appreciate it. And any reviews are also greatly appreciated. Now let's get on with the show. This is a segment about falling in and out of love with mountain biking. Remember that my love of mountain biking started way back in the 1980s, and I had had a Sears Free Spirit 10-speed white bike. And this white 10-speed was awesome for getting around. It was freedom, and it didn't work so well, so I was going to get a cooler bike because at that point, as a young teenager in the 80s, you looked around and all the other cool kids had BMX bikes and you're on an older Sears 10 speed and 10 speeds with younger kids at that time it kind of run their course the drop bars were not cool um, I remember so many kids would turn their drop bars over and backwards and replace them with BMX bars and flat bars and all this other stuff that they would do which was all crazy but you wanted to be in the BMX zone. So I went to Benny's, which was a place where I could afford a bike, and I noticed that there was a 24-inch wheeled BMX cruiser bike, and it was a Huffy, and it was awesome. It was black and gold. It had the pads, it had everything. I would look like the other kids, and it was big enough for me because I was a big, young teen, so it was like a cruiser BMX. It was not the 20-inch BMX. It was the 24-inch cruiser style. But right next to it was a bigger bike that actually looked more like it was in proportion to my body. And it was an ATB bicycle, an all-terrain bicycle. And I looked at it and it was the Team Murray Baja. And it was light blue, but it had thick tires. It had really cool, aggressive-looking handlebars. And this was the first time I remember seeing a mountain bike. And it was made in the U.S. It had, you know, it was not a high-end bike, but it was the first time I had ever seen a bike with that style. And it had a little sticker on it that said it was, you know, the Olympic edition for the 1984 Olympics. Mountain biking, all-terrain bicycles were apparently had something to do with the Olympics. So I had a conundrum, and I remember for like three weeks I kept going back and forth about what I was going to do. 
um, I thought about all the ways that I rode and riding on the trails and on the road, riding with my cousin in his back trails, you know, through farmland and forest in Montville versus, you know, riding the bike over to my grandmother's to cut a grass and having only a single speed versus having, you know, 10 speeds, which was good for getting on hills and stuff like that. Having going back and forth with my old 10 speed and and realizing that the gears were good but they didn't always shift well I was thinking oh these are thumb shifters they look a little bit more interesting than the the stem mounted horrible little shifters that I had before so I went back and forth for like three weeks it was emotional torture I was emotionally torturing myself and I eventually got to decide on the Murray Baja and this bike i loved it and even when i went over the handlebars because the brakes were <laughs> tuned to be really really quick i had my first cantilever brakes i gripped up and locked the front brakes and flipped over into a bush on a downhill even after that i still loved this bike because it would take everything that i could do to it with the one exception and the one exception was that the wheels would go out of true like crazy I had no idea what that even meant back then, but they would get warpy and wobbly. They were cheap steel wheels with very thin spokes, and I took them to a real bike shop because, you know, the department store wouldn't true wheels. And the real bike store that I took them to was horrible. Oh my God. For 1984, 85, I forget what it was, they charged me a crazy amount of money to true these wheels because you know as a big fu for buying a bike at a department store i could have bought a new wheel set a new entry-level alloy rim wheel set for the price that they charged me at true the wheels but i and my dad who is very mechanically inclined had no idea what was going on with that so we got it trued and then you know the brakes didn't rub for weeks and weeks and weeks after that but eventually it planted the seeds it was one of the first seeds of maybe you should learn how to do all that stuff yourself and and i gradually started picking up a little bit of time it would go on the back burner for years and years and years until it finally emerged as like my major hobby in my 40s so anyway that was my first experience with the mountain bike so that bike lasted me right through yukon and into my college years and then after graduating college i did not have a lot of cash because i didn't have a job yet so i got one of those knockoff Toys R Us mountain bikes. And finally I did a huge MS bike tour on it. You know, this kid's mountain bike and I put thousands of miles on it. It was, it was fine for a cheap bike back then. They used a lot of lower end components from previous years and stuff like that, unlike now where they're engineered bicycle shaped objects. Then my mother-in-law took pity on me and actually bought me a decent bike a little bit too big a frame for single track but it was awesome for rails to trails and i hooked up a bicycle trailer for my younger kids and man it was awesome but it was like a 25 inch frame and it was more like a hybrid road bike than it was a mountain bike and when i tried to do technical trails on it being six foot two and a 25 inch frame it was a little dangerous landing on that top bar uh, after coming off so stopped for a little bit and set it in my mind to get a you know decent 
mountain bike that would fit. And so I ended up getting a specialized Hard Rock 29er. I saved up my money for a few months and I was out on the trails again. And then there was, at the time, there was a ton of group rides going on. You could get on our group ride with a bunch of people who had just bought a mountain bike as well. And they had returned to it. You know, they're in their 30s. I was in my 30s at the time. And you got young kids. You can get out once or twice a week. And you're on the trails and you're going to these flowy single track places. You know, take take a greenway out to a trail connection. And then you're on this trail connection doing flowy single track. Occasionally some technical spots, but you're, you're doing all right. And then all of a sudden people started showing up for some of these rides with like full helmets and stuff like that. And... I started to get a little bit nervous about it at that point because there was this arms race that was on. And as I stopped going on some of the more technical group rides, I kind of fell away from doing the trails myself. And when Lance Armstrong was dethroned, all of a sudden that opened up along with finding a road bike at a yard sale for next to nothing. It opened up a joy of exploring on the roads. And I could think to myself, the cars were no more dangerous than, you know, some of the technical stuff that some of the more advanced guys on the group rides were doing. And without attitude of road biking that had gotten so bad when Lance Armstrong was king uh, out there, I felt a little bit more like I was reading books on the Tour de France and from the old days and reading books about people touring the world by bicycle and, you know, just normal everyday people going, you know, across the country by bike. And this inspired me to get out there and ride a lot more on roads. And then the next thing you know it, when I tried to take out my mountain bike, I would have a handful of bad experiences and then it just kind of went by the wayside so this next part i'm gonna go out on the trails this is just a couple weeks ago and i was trying to understand whether i could get back in love with mountain biking and where it went wrong so if this sounds a little bit too whiny to you just fast forward to the next segment i get it it's a little it's a little like a breakup it's a little like a breakup of with a biking style but i think i still I still like mountain bikes. I still like flowy single track. I still like trails, but I don't really trust myself enough as a guy in his forties. I don't have the physical skills to be able to balance my bike as well as some of the people who are out there. And I, I actually fear more for rock gardens than I do for cars on the road. Maybe that's not right, but anyway, so let's go to the trail and see if I can figure out where this thing all went wrong and if I can get back some of the passion for mountain biking that I had. So I am sitting in the parking lot of Penwood State Park in Connecticut and I am staring at my mountain bike because it's the first time I've ridden it this year and I'm kind of wondering when and why I fell out of love with mountain biking. Sometime between 2010 and now I went from only mountain biking to half road biking, touring to hardly ever mountain biking. Dropped out of the groups I used to ride with, uh, let my membership lapse in a couple organizations for mountain biking. And, you know, I guess today I'm just going to try and relearn it and see, you know, what happened. You know, why did I stop mountain biking? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, there were some injuries and there was some other stuff, but 
I don't know. I'll look for clues on the trail today. Here I go. I made it a few miles, kind of looking back on it. When I first got into my bike, I was looking down at it. I didn't really recognize it too much. I hadn't ridden it a lot. And looking back, that was probably when my original frame cracked. I had a titanium colored frame that I used to look down at a lot. And that cracked on me. The rear chainstay cracked. I didn't get hurt. It just stopped responding and luckily had a pretty soft spot in the trail. But I was able to swap over all the parts and pieces myself and rebuild it. So a few weeks ago, I had gotten into an accident where I went into a pothole with a 10-speed bike and I flew over the handlebars. I jumped train tracks and then didn't see the pothole behind the train tracks until it was too late and the front wheel got grabbed exactly in the train tracks. It was like the perfect size. Smaller, I would have gone over it. Bigger, I would have rolled into it and out of it. Just grabbed the front wheel and went flying into this uneven asphalt and kissed it with four of my teeth getting busted. And so going down the hill here on some of the feral road, I was trying to hit some of the potholes to try and relearn that a mountain bike can, can go over a pothole. Big knobby 29 inch tires. It's, it's different than a road bike and different than touring. It's not it. It's not quite it. Because I'd stopped riding before the accident and maybe it was one of those things where it takes a while to add up and the frame crack was definitely a part of it. Another couple miles, another couple clues. So here I am, I'm stuck at a tree in the trail and had to dismount so I thought I'd talk about the, the couple insights I had the last couple miles. One is, I remember the last ride that I took before really lost the energy to go out mountain biking with groups. It was a group that I did not know that well. In fact, I only vaguely knew one person in the group. And we went out to do some riding at night, and I really didn't like it. I felt like they were a lot better riders than I was. They had more expensive bikes, full suspension. They would all just stop every quarter of a mile and at a tree or something and they would watch one guy do these acrobatics on a stump and after watching for the first few times and being like oh I can learn something here I can learn something I, I realized I'm not going to do that stuff and everybody's like totally in love with this guy and bro crushes all around and I just after like the 10th stop to watch this one guy do some acrobatics so after like the 10th stop I just kind of said all right I gotta go back and I filed the power lines down and eventually got out to a road and then I rode like 10 miles back on the road to get to the parking area and I felt kind of like I felt kind of bobo I felt kind of bootleg because I wasn't able to get in with that group and then why would you do that with your free time you know, why would you go somewhere where you're not going to fit in on your free time? So maybe that was another thing, another, another nail in the coffin. Another accident that didn't really stop me too much, didn't even really slow me down for very long. Um, I was riding along and got to a small bridge over a little stream 
and I stopped to do a track stand there and I, I fell onto a log and the log had one of those old dead branches pointed up like a horn, like a unicorn horn coming out and it stabbed me in the upper thigh. Feel down, I can still feel an indentation in my upper outer thigh where the it was and where I had gotten the stitches and stuff like that. I can't really see the scars, but I can kind of, if I poke around, I can, I can feel it. And I remember riding after that and trying to pack the wound. My uh, cycling shorts, this must have been a long time ago because this is why I fell in love with the cycling shorts that I bought like five pairs of. The cycling short packed into the wound and kept it from bleeding so I could cycle back to where I was and it was like a, you know, a dime-sized hole in my thigh. So maybe that was another nail in the coffin, I don't know. So as we all know, it's really hard to slice a tomato with a knife, according to Ginsu ads. But nobody expects a Swiss Army knife to like have the best quality knife that they could find for any particular job or screwdriver or tweezers or whatever, but it's good to have. And I guess I would feel kind of good about being kind of a Swiss Army knife of activities. I can go trail running, I can go mountain biking, I can do cyclocross-ish touring, I can tour on a road bike. I can do some road bikey stuff. Not really particularly good at any of it, but I can do it. And today I'm noticing being back on the mountain bike is just my eyes. My eyes are set on a setting for touring bike and yet I'm out on the trail and I'm seeing things. I'm so used to being on a touring bike where gravel that's, you know, three inches in diameter will drop you on the, on the side of the road and could kill you. And here on the trail, it's, it's nothing. It's a pleasant section that's not washed out and muddy and being able to dial back the eyes back and forth and say, this is what I'm scanning for this time and this is what I'm scanning for that time. Maybe if I did it more, I'd be able to switch back and forth a little bit easier, but definitely I think there's a little bit of terror vision going on right now. <laughs> I'm like looking at stuff on the trail that is no big deal on a mountain bike at all. Like I can think about it and think, stop your complaining. I can hear people in, in listening to this saying like, what if whiner but I am like a little bit PTSD maybe I don't know I approach this log on the trail or, or a stump that's down and I if you see it initially through touring eyes or roadie eyes or gravel grinding eyes you're like whoa so initially your initial reaction is to is to balk at it you know it's like you're you're stopping you're you're hesitating and you really need an edge when you're mountain biking to to say that I can take that I can't take etc etc and I have totally lost that edge I have totally let that edge slip away I'm having fun but I definitely if I see a little thing on the trail it can it can certainly throw me off for a second while I recalculate I'm like I'm like a very slow old-fashioned GPS where I recalculate what I'm capable of going over with the mountain bike but I'm, I'm doing the work I'm doing the baby steps I'm getting back out there here I go Okay, so the switching back and forth in between the tourer eyes and the mountain biking eyes is going quicker. It's kind of like the machine at the optometrist where they say better this way or this way and they flip back and forth. It's like I literally am looking at something and then I'll see it go from being, ah, you're a touring bike to, oh, that's click, 
no, that's that's put into perspective. And and a lot of times it just goes from it's it's oh danger no not danger danger no not danger danger yes still danger avoid and it's going a lot quicker it's it's flipping back and forth the getting back in tune with with the trail i guess so as with so many things in life the answers can be found right in the movie Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby. I pretty much have lost my edge in mountain biking. And maybe it's because I've watched too many YouTube videos of people doing crazy, insane stuff, going over canyons on two by fours and all this other stuff, which I have no business doing nor want to do. The fact is that I need to just chain a cougar to my bike and get back out there and get my edge back. And at least as sharp an edge as I could have as a 40-something-year-old male who's scared of getting hurt sometimes um, and really is trying to exercise for the long game of being that guy who rides his bike across the country at age 70 and age 80 and stuff like that. So, back in the game, crossing over, cougar tied up to my bike, ready to go. Thank you for following me through the catharsis of this. I hope it wasn't too boring. And maybe, hopefully, it's not just me ranting. It's I hope that people can relate to this when they've given up the bike. It might be you giving up the bike, you know, even just to go around the block. And why have you done it? You know, and why are you nervous? And did you get hit by a tree? Take a header over a pothole like I did. Whatever it is, um, just sometimes just reflecting on it might help you to understand what happened and whether or not you want to continue to pursue that mountain biking not as passionate about it as i once was to be quite honest love mountain bikes love going out for a nice mountain bike ride periodically i think i'll find myself getting back out there is it going to overshadow what's in the spotlight for me right now which is touring and exploring by road no it's not someday am i going to go back to it maybe who knows i'm open to it i like going through fields you know what do we call that these days is it mountain biking in a field is it gravel grinding if there's no gravel it's a field i don't know but maybe I'll create a new genre of old guy mountain biking or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, thanks for listening. Here we are at Fitchburg, and they have a race going on as well as the swap meet and show. What do you guys think? It's pretty cool. It is. It's pretty There's cool. a race. There was a lady with a dog. Yeah. Dog was running, running really next to the bike. Running really close to the bike. It was that was cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah, and the dog could run fast. Yeah. It looks like a cheetah, literally, with its spots. All kinds of different bikes. So we're up in Fitchburg, Mass, and we're at the Historical Society. We are hosting the largest gathering of Ivory Johnson bicycles 
probably in the U.S., all in uh, one place, made not more than a mile from uh, where they're on display here. So Ivor Johnson, tell me a little bit about the history of the brand. Um, Ivor Johnson originally started out in Worcester, Mass., and in 1891, they moved all production up to Fitchburg. Uh, they made bikes in Fitchburg from uh, 1892 to about 1942. I see a bunch of different styles. We start with the high wheeler in the back, and we move right up into modern-looking bikes. What what are Ivor Johnson's most known for? Uh, the most notable feature would be the truss frame. That's their biggest. So let's take a look at a truss frame. You have two examples on the back here that have been restored. Okay, so we have a top tube, and then there's like an arc beneath the top tube that's welded in the middle and at the ends. So this truss frame, what was the claim to fame for it? Uh, it was supposed to make the bike stiffer, stronger. Um, a lot of it was probably just uh, publicity and cool. a selling feature. I mean, it looks cool as heck, too. Exactly. <laughs> that, that was a big, big selling feature of it, yeah. So when they were selling bikes back in the day, were these bikes for uh, the upper end of the market, for everybody? Were there models for everybody, or were these like high-end bikes? Uh, Price-wise, Ivy Johnson was definitely on the higher end, but they were also known as the, probably the best quality bikes made in the day. Uh, all the production stuff was done in-house, so they had control of everything, and they didn't skimp on anything, on materials. It was all top-notch stuff. Excellent. So Ivor Johnson made right here in Fitchburg. And uh, thank you very much for showing us around. We'll put up some pictures on the website. Thank you. Okay, well, you're on Bike Karma, and we are done with the bike show. They are still racing. I had to, for my sins, I had to lug all the things I bought about half a mile. Probably about half a mile. Yeah. Yeah, about half a mile to get to a place where I could pick them up with the truck because there's a road race going on. What'd you kids think? Lots of bikes. Lots and lots of bikes. Was it interesting? Mm. <laughs> it was pretty okay, cool. there was a race, a museum, and a swap meet. It was it was cool. There's so many things. Old bikes, new right. bikes. Well, I appreciate you guys going with me to share the ride up there and getting breakfast and lunch on the way back. That was all good. And listening to funny podcast. Yeah. All right. Take uh, care. Oh, oh. Bye. And keep it wheel. Keep it wheel. Ah, Instagram. For those of you who are uninitiated, there are pictures with labels from millions of people from around the world. The labels are preceded by a hashtag or pound sign. Some are simple and self-explanatory, such as hashtag bicycle or hashtag cycling. Others are more specific, such as hashtag vintage mountain bike parts. And still others leave one with more questions than answers, such as hashtag your bike hates you and hashtag wrong side of the river. One of my favorites is hashtag bike shop cats. I love cats despite their proclivity to waz in random locations 3% of the time for no discernible reason. They're characters that enrich my life. I also love dogs and my chickens, but not with the connection to my bike workshop downstairs. 
To me, cats go better with working with bikes, but not everybody agrees. Some would disagree advocating the bike shop dog position. So it's basically dog people versus cat people within the context of a bike shop. This could be a home workshop, it could be a for money workshop, it could be an actual brick and mortar business, or it could just be your shed. When I look my dogs into the eyes, I get the sad puppy look. Not quite true. They're a bit sadder looking than most dogs, bordering on paralyzing clinical depression. And their voices, because you make voices for them as, as one does, are scared, sad, and confused most of the time. The only exceptions being the manic glee when I take the leash off the hook, and the nervous, mistrusting, laughing smiles when we romp and play. Oh, impure anger built on a foundation of fear when the mailman comes around. My cats, on the other hand, exude comments ripe with self-confidence and importance. Their interjections are authoritative and perceptive with frightening insight. You might think I put a lot of my imagination into this, but yeah, I'm not the only pet owner out there who makes their animals talk to them. So let's get down to the bicycle workshop. For me, it's in my basement. So the internet has sort of spoken on this already. As of the time that I'm making this, there are 597 dog references to bike shop dog or dogs, and there's only 156 cat or cats, bike shop cats. So I'm making a case why the cats are better for bicycle workshops. Here we are downstairs at my house. My bicycle workshop is the source of much joy and catharsis, but also much frustration and despair. So you're working on a bicycle, on a frustrating bicycle puzzle, and you look down at the two animals. First, you see the dog. And are slightly surprised because the dog is usually only on the first floor of the house, the only one they feel comfortable on unless there's a thunderstorm. You look at the dog, it looks away with shame and sadness in its eyes. This is too hard. We should take the whole thing to a shop and have them figure it out. The dog again looks at the ground in utter shame and defeat. You then turn up to look at your cat. Your cat's always higher than your dog. So you look up at your cat, who is looking down at the dog with absolute disgust in its face. Turns, looks at you instead of the dog, slightly disgusted, and says, The problem is simplicity itself. You need to get a bottom bracket with a narrower spindle to make a more improved chain line for the big ring. Now stop procrastinating and fix your mistake. You then look back at the dog, who looks at you and says, What's he saying? What does that mean? Did he make fun of me? To the dog's answer, yes, I am making fun of you. But to you, you, sir, should have never ordered that bottom bracket in the first place. Now you know why it was less expensive than the more traditional sizes. If I wanted to, I would take over all your ordering for you and put you out of your misery, but then you'd never learn now, would you? He's making fun of us. When you successfully get done building or repairing your bike, the difference between the response of the cat and dog are just as diverse. Well, that's about time. You may express your gratitude for my support on this build with catnip and treats in abundance now, please. You may then stroke my fur with my favorite brake tool. The dog, on the other oh. hand, looks oh. at you, 
then looks at the bike, mm. then looks at the ground, um. then looks at the bike, back um. at you, then shamefully at the ground. Um. Keeps doing this for several minutes. It ends with the tail wag and leaving the scene. Meanwhile, the cat has knocked over your bike. And while rubbing its body up against the tool rack, pushes it down on top of the dog. This is the joy of animals in your bicycle workshop. Well, you've made it to the end of another episode of Bike Karma. Thank you very much for listening. I wanted to thank Steve Kinsman from Fitchburg Rides and the Fitchburg Historical Society for telling us about Ivor Johnson bikes. My kids for going to Fitchburg with me. The band Mob Jack and Keller Glass, who are responsible for our excellent theme music, the beginning and end. Check them out at mobjackmusic.com. To the people who've downloaded episodes over 1,400 times, thanks to close to 600 followers on Instagram, all the interesting bicycle people who are patiently waiting for me to interview them, and thanks again to you for listening. If you like any of the segments or episodes, please like, follow, or give a review on iTunes, Podbean, Facebook, Instagram, or Tumblr. If you did or didn't like the episodes or you have an idea for a future story, uh, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. And unless I do a bonus episode in August, I'll see you in September. Until then, keep it wheel.